At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to his followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as he marks out the way of discipleship for us. All right, this morning, I have the privilege of opening up God's Word with you. So if you have a Bible or electronic device, I want to encourage you to take it out and turn with me to John chapter 14. Probably my, one of my most favorite chapters of all of Scripture. The depth of this passage that we're going to um, look at today is so deep. We're not going to be able to cover everything that's in this passage. And so if you're hoping that there's something there, a little nugget that you want me to, to talk about I, in, and I don't cover it, let me know. Call me up and say, I'd love to know mo- a little bit more about this and I'd love to, to grab a lunch with you or whatever. But this, the theological depthness of John chapter 14 has been a place where I've come to over the years and just found encouragement, found strength in a difficult world. And you know, when I was a kid, there was an opportunity to, with my family, I was about five or six years old, that Kmart, the local Kmart in our town, would always have a fair every once, once a year. And so we'd all like save up our pennies and we're like, mom, dad, we're going to the fair. And so we go to the fair. And the first time I ever saw a bounce house, I was overwhelmed. I thought, man, this has got to be the greatest thing of all, a bounce house. Like you can jump and you can flip and you can, and never have to worry about being in pain. So I'm like, mom, dad, I need to get in that bounce house. Do whatever it takes to get me in the bounce house. So I did. I got in line and then I got into the bounce house And with an instant, a few minutes, I went from total joy to total terror. I was about five or six years old, and it just so happened at the same time, there's a group of about 15 middle school kids that got in there at the same time as me. Never been in a bounce house before. Like, there was a time, some of you younger people, you're like, bounce houses? That's, everyone's got bounce houses. You can have a bounce house. Not back then. Like, bounce houses were like the newest craze, and they were the coolest thing. Everyone wanted to be in a bounce house. And so I got into this bounce house, and all of a sudden, I barely was able to stand up. So I'm getting on my hands and knees, and the boys and girls started bouncing, and I'm moving to and fro, and I'm bouncing. I can't even, I'm trying to find something to grab hold of to keep myself steady, and I'm bouncing here, I'm bouncing there, and within a few minutes, I find myself, like, in between between the wall and the base, you know how there's like that little, yeah, I was stuck in there like suffocating. Like I couldn't breathe, I couldn't move, I couldn't do anything, and I'm like, oh Lord Jesus, help me please, because I'm about to die. It was the most scary, it was terrifying. Like bounce houses were like from Satan because I could not find my steady bounce. And if you've ever been in one, you know what I'm talking about, right? You're like trying to find your way. And the whole time I was in there, I was just trying to find something to hold on to to keep me steady. Right? If I could just have something to hold on to, I could make it through until the three minutes were over. And as I share that story, I wonder how many times as we go through life, we feel like we're in a bounce house. Like, like the waves of pain or the, the difficulties of life come our way and we walk through a season, a tumultuous season. And we're just looking for something to keep us steady. 
Right? Maybe you're here today and you're just coming out of a season of difficulty. You're coming out of that season of like not being able to have sure footing and you don't know what's coming. You feel like you might die. Maybe you're just coming out of that season and today you're ready just to praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for sustaining me through that season. Or maybe you're here today and you're in the midst of that season. Like life is hard. It's difficult. You feel like you're being bounced to and fro and you're looking for something to hold on to just to steady you. Today, we're going to give a word to encourage you. But I can also assure you, if you're not one of those other two, then you're getting ready to go into a season where whatever's going to happen, I don't know how long it's going to happen, but I know that a season's coming where you're going to feel that way. So allow God's word today to prepare you to walk through that season today. Today, as we look at John 14, we're continuing our series entitled The Follower's Trail Guide. As we've been looking at Jesus' farewell address to his disciples, we've been taking a look as, as Jesus knows he's getting ready to go to the cross. He's gathered his disciples together and he's getting ready to teach them and to, to help prepare them for his absence, knowing that he's going to the cross and he's going to die and then he's going to come back alive. He knows all these things. His disciples don't really get it. And so we come to this, these passages and this this string of passages, and we see that Jesus is encouraging and challenging his disciples. And today what we're going to see specifically is we're going to see where, what we should grab hold of when we walk through difficult times. If we're looking to find something to steady us in the midst of the tumultuous life, the difficulties of life, if we grab hold of Christ... And if we trust in him, we will be okay. That Jesus promises to steady us in the midst of the storm. And if we're grabbing hold of anything else, if you try in the midst of the storm to grab hold of anything else, you're going to come up disappointed. And so today as we're in this passage, we see that we are called today to believe in Jesus Jesus is our trail guide. Jesus wants us to fully trust him and fully follow him with all of our hearts as we walk through this difficult life. And he promises that he will not let us fall. He promises that he will not let us fail. But he has already gone before us. He's already walked the difficult life that we're living right now. And he has found success. And his success was found in surrendering to his heavenly father. And so today we're going to look at Jesus and we're going to trust and we're going to believe that we're called to believe in him. And so, again, the context is Jesus is in the upper room. He's just said some very difficult things to the disciples. He's told his disciples that he's going away, that he's going to be departing from them for a while. And where he's going, they can't follow now. But then he goes on and he talks about the one that was going to betray him. One of the disciples that had lived with him is going to turn their backs on him. And betray him. And then he, last week we left off while he was talking to Peter. And Peter's like, I will die for you, Jesus. And, Peter's, and Jesus is like, no, Peter, you're going to deny me. And so he, all of this information is floating around the room. And all the disciples, it's landing on the disciples very, very different. And it's almost as though these disciples feel like a toddler that's in the middle of a bounce house. That's being uh, bounced to and fro and everything's out of control. 
And so they feel that way, and so now Jesus wants to respond and wants to give them three ways that they can believe in Jesus, three reasons that they can believe in Jesus. So let's dive into our text this morning, beginning in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what I want us to see from just these first six verses of this passage is that we're called to believe in Jesus because he will bring us to the Father. We're to believe in him because he's the one that is going to bring us to the Father. I love how Jesus can read the room in this situation. Right? He understands what's going on. He he's, understands what the disciples are feeling. And so he begins, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't. Don't allow yourself to be overwhelmed by that which you don't understand and that which you don't know and that which is difficult. Don't don't be alarmed by that. Jesus also knew that the disciples were deeply troubled and he knew that troubled people need peace and affirmation. When we walk through troubled times, that's what we need. We need peace and we need affirmation and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be anxious, but grab hold of what brings peace. Grab hold of me. Grab hold of God. And for their whole lives, from their Jewish tradition, their upbringing, they had learned and they had believed what um, Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. So their whole life, they had learned, and they had been told to trust in the Lord, to trust in God with all of their heart. Believe in God. Trust in him that he knows the way. And here's here's an interesting thing about the Jewish people at that time. If you go back and look at the Old Testament, how God has always revealed himself in the Old Testament, there are some ways that God has revealed himself in scary ways. Right? Remember when, when Moses is up on the mountaintop and, and God begins to speak to the people at Mount Sinai and the people of God are like, Moses, tell God, we can't handle God speaking to us like that. So please, like, make him stop. We'll listen to him through you, but he's too much for us. And so the Old Old Testament understanding of God was that God was a God to be feared. God was a God that was great and powerful. He was a God of justice. He was a God of might. He was a God of loving kindness. And so these Jewish men were called to believe in God. And their idea of God was this God that was a just judge, that was a loving judge, but he was a God that was still distant. And so now when Jesus says, You believe in God. This is a massive shift. Because he's saying, believe in God, believe also in me. 
This is mighty and this is massive because Jesus here is proclaiming that he is on the same level as God, but he's different than God because we, what we celebrate at Easter or Christmas time is that God becomes flesh and dwells among us, that God takes on flesh because God is mighty and he's holy and he's just and we can't have anything to do with him because we are sinful and we are dirty. And yet now Jesus is like, you believe in God, believe also in me. Believe in me because I am God in the flesh. You want to know what God looks like? Look into my eyes. So the, he goes on to say, believe in God, believe also in me. But then he goes on to give him this, this sense of peace. He says, in my father's house, there's many rooms. Now sometimes we want to come to this passage here and we want to, want to see it as describing what heaven's going to be like. That each one of us are going to have like a, a golden condo. Right, like I'm going to have like gold everything. I'm going to be in Jesus' house. It's going to be awesome. And, and that's not the context. That's not what, what John is trying to describe here. He's not necessarily trying to describe the, like, the distinctions of heaven or the accommodations of heaven. More of what he's trying to talk about is that there is enough room for everyone. There's room in heaven for you. There's an opportunity for you to be with God in eternity as a part of his house. That's, that's what he's trying to get at. He said, there is a home. And here's the crazy thing. Since the fall, in each one of our hearts, there's this yearning to be home. There's a yearning to be safe. A yearning to be loved. It's a yearning to be known. It's a yearning to, to be united with something that's bigger and greater than ourselves. To someone be able to say, I love you. You are enough. And so there's this call towards home in our hearts, and that's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying there is a place. There's the Father's house. The Father's house is open to anyone. There's enough room for everyone. Doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you're born, doesn't matter the color of your skin, how much money you make, none, none of that matters. There's enough room for everyone. So the desire to be home that's placed in our hearts is something that was lost in the fall that we deeply desire. And then in verse 3, Jesus assures that if he goes away, that if he goes to the cross, if he does the work of atoning for man's sins, paying, becoming the bridge between a holy God and sinful man, if he does the work to bring those two together, to provide an opportunity for our sins to be forgiven and us to be made right in the sight of God. If he goes away and does that work, then he's coming back. He promises that he's coming back. And who's he coming back for? For those whom believe in him. That he's going to come back for us. And he's coming back and he's going to take us with him. So now he's there preparing a place for us. Getting, the, getting it ready for us to be with our heavenly father. And he goes on. He tells him, you know the way to where I'm going. So in a sense, the disciples are comforted, but then they're confused. They're concerned because they don't want to miss out on the promise. So, so Thomas, which I love Thomas, because Thomas is one that's like, I got to know for sure. Like, I, I don't want to leave any doubts on the table. I need to know for sure. So he pipes up and he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Thomas isn't getting it. Thomas doesn't understand fully what God is doing through Christ in this moment. He says, we don't know where you are going. And then Jesus goes on to say, 
He says, you do know the way. I've been with you this whole time. I've walked, I am God in the flesh. I am the way. I am the conduit. I am the, the bridge that breaks the chasm between a holy God and a sinful man. I am the one. And that's why he goes on and says the most deeply profound words of scripture. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. That no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension are the way to God. All of the work that he's done on our behalf. So he is the way. He is not a way. He is the way. He is the only way. There is no other way, there is no other path that leads to God except for the path that leads through Jesus. You see, we have to, if we hope to be with God in heaven, we hope to have our sins forgiven, we hope to be released from the shame and the pain of this life, we have to decide what we're gonna do with Jesus. Either Jesus is our Lord and Savior and we surrender and sacrifice everything to him, or he's not. So Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. And then he goes on and he says that he is the truth, that he is the standard for everything that is real in this world and everything that is real and true about God. There is no greater truth. He is, because he is God and as creator, he gets the opportunity to define what's true. He gets to set truth. You and I don't get to set truth. You and I get to discover truth. He sets it, we discover it. Because he's creator. So not only is he the way to the Father, he is the truth, he is the life. He is the one that created life. He is the one that supplies life. He is the author of life over death. He is the resurrection and the life. And apart from him, there is no life. So we know God because we know Jesus. And we come to place our faith in Jesus. You know, there's this growing trend in our culture today called deconstructing. We see a lot of people deconstructing their faith. And if you're not familiar with it, basically what's, what's happening is people are trying to, to look at the things that they believe, the things that they've placed their faith in, and then they begin to look at it in minute details to see whether or not what they have believed works for them, is still up to date, or makes them feel good. And so they're going through and they're trying to, to deconstruct the things that they have believed. And then they're trying to, sometimes they put it back together and sometimes they don't put it back together. And so they deconstruct their faith like remodeling their house, right? When you go through remodeling your house, you walk through and you're like, I don't really like that anymore. We need to update that. That's outdated. That's broken. That doesn't. And then what happens is you remodel and you put it back together. The problem with what's happening in our culture today with this move towards deconstruction is that people are deconstructing their faith, their understanding of the truth of the word of God and who Jesus is. And they're throwing out a lot of truth. They're allowing their feelings, what they feel about things, to triumph over what is true, what has been tested and has been tried year over year. I'm not talking about tradition. Right? Sometimes tradition does need to be kicked out. I'm talking about truth. People are going through the word of God and they're like, I don't like that, so I'm, I'm not going to believe that. But I'm going to accept this about Jesus, but I'm going to reject this about Jesus. 
So people, as they walk through this time, have a low view of the Bible. They emphasize personal feelings over biblical mandates. They shift the gospel message from talking about sin and redemption to things like social reform, social justice, equality, these things like that. They're like, well, let's live like Jesus. Let's not submit to Jesus, but let's live in the ways of Jesus. This is very, very dangerous. A Pew report has talked about uh, over the past uh, 15 years that the religious nuns, those that a nun is one that has no religious affiliation that says, I'm not a denominationalist, I'm not following this, I don't, I don't believe in any religious system. So the growth of nuns has doubled over the past 15 years. From two, in 2007, about 15% of the population identified themselves as nuns. Now today, 30% of people describe themselves as nuns. Not nuns in the sense of the Catholic Church nuns, but nuns as not following any religion. I don't claim any, I don't claim Christianity, I don't claim anything. I wanna just divorce myself from any organized thing. And what's taken its place is what's known as syncretism. Is that what people do is they, they walk down the buffet of things that make you happy, things that are true, things that feel good. And so they walk down and they're like, oh, God is love? I'll take that. God is just, nah, passing on that today. Oh, there's multiple ways to heaven. Everyone gets into heaven. I'll take that. Oh, I can, my feelings are more important than, than what's truth. That's good. I should submit to authority. Nah, I'm kicking that out. And so what happens is they get the smorgasbord of all these other beliefs that are conflicting many times. And they're walking in their ways, hoping that they're going to find peace because, again, their feelings triumph over others. See, Jesus is not just a model to follow. We're not just called to live like Jesus and follow him as a leader, as a teacher, as a standard, or as an example. He is not a way to life. He is the way of life. And what it takes is coming to the place of trusting in his work alone for salvation. We must come to the place of saying, not my will, not my way, not my thoughts, not my deeds, not my acts, but what he has done. The faith that God demands is a belief in the way of Jesus that rejects every other way of life and committing to his way. So we reject every other thing that says, I can give you life, I can give you peace. We say, no, I'm rejecting all that. The thing that I'm holding on to, to steady myself in the course of life, this life, but also that's going to give me rest and eternal life is Jesus himself. He is the one that I'm holding on to. He is the only one. So the crazy thing about this passage, and I love this passage, and I wish I could dive into it more is we see that though there is enough space in the Father's house for everyone, not everyone gains access. We are not teaching some kind of universalism here. Yes, Jesus' work on the cross was enough for everyone. Yes, there's enough room in heaven for everyone, but not everyone enters in because you have to go through Jesus. Either Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you're submitted to him or you reject him. Those that come to surrender to him, Jesus says, come. God says, you're welcome. Come on, little child, come into my rest. But those that reject Jesus do not have the promise 
of heaven. Do not have the promise of being with God. So first, we must believe, come to the place where we believe that Jesus will bring us back to the Father, that he's done the work to bring us back to the Father. The second thing we need to see is that we need to believe that Jesus will show us the Father. Look with me in verse 7. He goes on as he's answering the question. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Then Philip goes on and he says, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works of them, uh, the of account of the works themselves. What Jesus is saying is that we know the Father because we know what Jesus is like. If you want to know the Father's heart, look at Jesus' heart. If you want to know what the Father's will is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what the Father would say, listen to the Son. If you want to know what the Father will do, look at what the Son has done. If you want to know about the Father, look at the Son. People have so much confusion about what God is like, but the the story of Christianity is simple here. We know what the Father is like because we know what Jesus is like. God is becoming flesh and dwelling among us, showing us the love and the sacrifice and the servanthood of God the Father on behalf of sinful children. I can think of no greater love. We see the face of God through the face of the Son. And now Philip is here at a place where he he literally has this deep question. He's like, Jesus, show us, show us some big miraculous sign and then we will believe. And Jesus is like, Philip, you're not getting it. You're like reading the wrong book. Like I am, I am he. When you look at me, look at the Father. So we see the deep understanding of Jesus and his deity. The fact that he's not separate from the Father in the sense that he is God himself. But he is God So Jesus reminds them that when he spoke, they heard the Father. And when Jesus was at work, the Father was at work. And the same is true for you and I. We've seen the Father, God, at work for years. He's worked in your life. He's kept you. He's pursued you. He's continued to pursuing you. He's revealed himself to you. He's spoken to you. He's protected you. He's chased you down, and he's still chasing you down. He's surprised you. He's been gracious to you. He's been loving to you. He's been accepting you. You've seen the Father. Even if you're not yet a child, you've seen the pursuit of God because he loves you. And he wants you to come to a place of where you understand and see Jesus as the greatest gift. So I, I, I meet people all the time that say, I believe in God. I, I have faith in God. I'm like, that, that's great. I, that's awesome. Let's unpack that for a moment. 
Okay, what do you mean by that, that I have faith? Well, I've always believed in God. Okay, that's great. Tell me more about that. Like, well, I believe believe in God. I'm like, well, what do you do about Jesus? Well, Jesus, I believe in God. And then I always come to this verse in James. I love how James, the half-brother of Jesus, says this. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Did you catch that? Belief in God gets you so far, right? It gets you to damnation, right? Because when you believe in God, you know that there's a God that you're accountable to, but just having a knowledge of God and a trust of God doesn't save you. It just makes you condemned because he's holy, he's just, he's righteous, and you're not, I'm not. And there's nothing that I can do to earn favor with God as men have tried throughout the ages. Well, if I can just be smarter, if I can just do better, if I can just be better, if I can just follow some religious rules, then I'll be able to make it back to the Father. Oh, that's hogwash. You see, belief in God doesn't save you. What saves us is belief in Jesus. Because Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus is the one that has done the work to reconcile us back to God. And so you may have a different view of God. You may see God as a benevolent Father. You may see him as a harsh judge. But we know the Father only through the Son. And I love how God, through Jesus, pulls back the veil and closes the chasm between a holy God and sinful man. He shows us that God's love pursues us in our weakness. He pursues us in our shame. And all we must simply do is believe in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus today? Is he your only hope of salvation? Lastly, I want us to see that believe Jesus, believing in Jesus will glorify the Father through us. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus, we will glorify, the Father will be glorified through us. I love Jesus' words here in verse 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. When he says truly, truly, he's like, listen up. This is for real. I'm about to drop some real knowledge on you that if you really want to have a life that's changed, like put this into practice. And this is what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And I love how Jesus moves from the work of the Son of God into the work of the children of God. Right? He, he's done the work. He's done the work to save us. He's done the work to redeem us. And then he invites us into that same ministry. He gives us this ministry of reconciliation, this message of reconciliation. And he goes on and he says, you've witnessed what God has done. Now you're going to participate in what God is doing. You're going to be an active mover. In some ways, you're moving from being a fan of God to being on the team where you go from the sidelines to the field, where you're actually doing the work of the Father. And he goes on and he says this. He says, you're going to do greater things. You're going to do greater things than I. And, and, and sometimes we can 
cherry-pick verses of Scripture, and we can do this in this passage too. There are two common places that people cherry-pick out of this passage. You can't cherry-pick. you got to keep it in its context, right? Because that's where it finds meaning. What he's saying here is you're going to do greater things than me. Not that we're going to walk on water. Not that we're going to turn water into wine. Not that we're going to do those things. What he's talking about here is the mission of reconciliation. He's talking about discipleship. right? Because remember, as Jesus uh, comes back to life and he gathers his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, he says, therefore, go and make disciples. Like This is your task, to go and make disciples. All authority in heaven I've given to you. Now, therefore, go and make disciples. So that's the task that is before us. And Jesus is saying, you're going to do greater things than me. Even to his disciples, right? We, we see them taking the gospel message outside of Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria. And by the end of the book of the Acts, they get to the ends of the known world. They did it. And yet you and I are given that same task. We're giving that same opportunity. You will do greater things. How can we know this? There was a challenge that Jesus faced when he took on humanity. In Jesus taking on humanity, he could only be in one place at one time because he was human. But now, what took place at the moment of Pentecost? Remember in, in Acts chapter one and in chapter two, we see that, 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 that uh, Jesus has come back and then he ascends back into heaven. The disciples are all there. They're super excited because of what God has done. And then they gather together and Peter starts preaching. And on that day, thousands of people were saved and the Holy Spirit comes down upon them. Like, sometimes we miss out on the, the idea of the Trinity, right? We have God the Father. We kind of understand that, right? And we have Jesus the Son, but one of the most misunderstood persons of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, I want you to understand, is the full power and presence of God. And at the moment of salvation, when you and I bend our knee before Jesus and proclaim his as Savior and Lord, that power moves into our lives. That power moves into us. So in some ways, Jesus, God, is in every place at every time wherever there is a believer. So that's a greater thing, right? Today, right now, we who have believed have the power of God living inside of us. And the power of God living inside of us is to move us to do these greater things. That's right. To love the unlovable. To disciple the derelict. That's what we're called to. We have the power to do it. We have the mandate to do it. And that's why he goes on to say, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Oh, this verse has been so cherry-picked, right? Whatever you ask, name it and claim it. Do it. It's, it's there. No, that's not what he's saying. That's not the context of the passage. Ask him for anything according to the mission that he's given us. You want to see people saved? Ask the Father. You want to see people disciple? Pray big prayers that God would disciple people through you. And guess what? God's going to do it. You want to grow the church? Pray. You want your, your neighborhoods to be healed? Pray. Ask the Father to heal. Ask him. That's what he's saying to us, that we have the opportunity because we are followers of Jesus. We have the opportunity to see mighty things. We can see strongholds broken. We can see marriages restored. We can see generational sin taken care of and wiped away because of what God has done. Do you believe that today? Have you come to the place of where you consider Jesus and you're like, Jesus, you're all I want. You're all I need. 
If you haven't, then today, that's your response. Come to him in all of your sin and all of your shame and say, Jesus, I trust in you. But for the rest of us, maybe you're here and you've just been struggling. You're like, God, can you still use me? My life, even in the midst of the tumult of life, God can still use you. Maybe today you just need to be reminded to grab hold of Jesus once again. Hold on to him with all your might, and he will direct your path. For some of you, you need to start praying bigger. We need to start praying bigger, asking that God would use us in mighty ways, that God would put us in difficult situations, that God would use us to be a part of redeeming lives, that God would put us in places that are difficult, that we would have to go outside of ourselves, that only if God shows up that we find our safety. Would you pray big with me? that God would use us in our workplaces, that God would work us in our homes, that God would use us to, to be there to help people overcome generational sin and curse, all of that stuff. It's messy, but it's what Jesus did. And it's what Jesus is calling you and I to. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your words today. We thank you that you understand what it's like to go through difficult times that you understand our pain, you understand our difficulty, you understand our fears, you understand our anxieties, and yet, God, you have said that you are the way, the truth, and the life. May that be the resolve of our hearts today, to trust in you with all that you are and all that you've done. Father, may you continue to move mighty in this place. May you, as we sing this song, convict us of areas of our life where we've been disobedient or out of line with you. Or maybe you just want to call us to your feet. And Father, I pray that we would be obedient. Help us to follow through with whatever you're laying on our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.